Hello, beautiful humans, and welcome to another episode at the Bitcoin Stoa. For any first-time listeners here today, the Bitcoin Stoa is a community-funded platform. So if you enjoy listening, you can support the project by sending some sats to the QR code on our homepage at bitcoinstoa.com, or you can also stream sats using something like the Breeze app, which has a really badass podcast feature. And I think at the end of the day, the best way to support this project is really to just share the content with people you know who might be curious about Bitcoin. It's free. We try and make it as accessible as possible. And uh, we just want to help educate the world to transition to a Bitcoin world. Current Moscow time is 1819 at 711395. And with that said, it is my honor to welcome Larry Lepard, who's kindly offered his time this morning to have a conversation. Larry, welcome to the STOA. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me on your show. I look forward to it. Yeah, I'm uh, very grateful for you being here. And I think uh, I first heard about you from Greg Foss when he mentioned you on a tweet breakdown that we did together. And that kind of led me down uh, the Larry Lepard rabbit hole. So I listened to your speech that you gave in New Orleans uh, at the New Orleans Investment Conference, which I found extremely powerful. Uh, And we've included a link on this episode page at the STOA um, so that people can listen to it. And then I listened to your interview on uh, with Peter at What Bitcoin Did, which was essentially a financial history masterclass, like uh, really helped me understand how we got to this weird place. And uh, I encourage everyone to listen to both um, Peter McCormack's What Bitcoin Did podcast with Larry and his speech. Um, And I wanted to listen to that stuff because I don't want to repeat what has already been covered. Um, And I did find some interesting nuggets. Uh, so that we can kind of unpack them and maybe a good place to start because you're a first time guest. I'd love to hear your Bitcoin story, Uh, you know, when and how Bitcoin found you and maybe sort of significant moments along the way leading up to today. And if people want more background info on Larry, I'd probably refer to them to what Bitcoin did because I think he did a great job at giving your history. So what's your Bitcoin story, Larry? Yeah, so briefly, um, I was kind of aware of it, not in 08 or 09, not that early, although not that far after that, because I was involved with Ron Paul and his uh, politics. And uh, a lot of the people in that group understood what Bitcoin was very early. Um, and so it, it kind of hit my radar screen in 2009, 2010. Um, and, uh, but I didn't do anything about it, uh, in large part, because it was kind of like, how do you buy it? There weren't exchanges. There weren't, you know, right. the notion that you had to go and get a paper wallet. Um, actually, and actually I subscribed to Bix Bix Weir and he sent me some Bitcoin, which, you know, for a $50 subscription, I can't remember, but I think what he sent me ended up being worth multiple hundreds of dollars, you know, a few years later. But, um, so I had a paper wallet sitting in my desk and I thought, you know, I got to play with this at some point, And I did. I got really intrigued with what it was. And so I got to go buy some of this. Now we're back, you know, now we're into kind of 2012, 2011-ish. And it still was difficult to buy. Um, And then, of course, Mt. Gox came along. And I was in the process of filling out the Mt. Gox forms and getting an account at Mt. Gox when Mt. Gox blew up. So so I kind of ducked that bullet totally inadvertently. And then uh, post-Mt. Gox, uh, you know, as, as everyone knows, Coinbase arrived. And uh, so I made my first purchase through Coinbase in 2013-ish, uh, late, yeah, I think 2013-ish. And my prices, a couple, of, bought a bunch of coins over time and uh, added up to, I don't know, average price in the high threes, low fours, $100 per coin. Uh, mm-hmm. And then I, honestly, I kind of forgot about it. I was running my business, doing other stuff. And a few years later, I woke up and said, oh, I ought to check that account. And, you know, oh my goodness, it's, it's up quite a bit. And so at that point, I really said, okay, there's something going on here. I got to dig into this. And I did. And I began kind of hodling, you know, slowly but surely. And and like most everybody else, I got very excited. I went to a, a, a Bitcoin show. This is in 2016 or 17 in San Francisco. And there was nobody there, but everyone was pretty excited. And it was the run up to 17,000 around Thanksgiving of 2017. And I, of course, bought right into that. 
and you know, I was buying at 2,000, 5,000, 10,000, 17. I probably almost hit the top tick uh, and thought it was going to the moon. And of course it didn't. Um, but my view was that nothing really had changed. And so I, you know, as an investor, I kind of understand the value of dollar cost averaging. So coming off of that high, I started buying it again, um, you know, at 10. And I made actually one of my largest purchases was at 3,800, which I'm kind of proud of in 2019 when it kind of was at this bottom. And I just thought to myself, well, I'm in for this much. I paid 17 for some of these. It's either going to be worth a lot or it's going to be worth zero. You know, I might as well, if I paid 17, I got to buy it at 3,800. And so from there, I just kept buying. And, and, and that's kind of how I've consistently done it. And I think that's an important thing that people should focus on is that it is volatile. It moves around a lot. And, you know, dollar cost averaging is important. I mean, I, I feel bad for people who were sold on Bitcoin at Thanksgiving in 2017 and then thought they'd made a mistake in 2018 or 19 and blew it out. You know, because you have to really understand what it is. You have to be prepared for the ups and downs um, because obviously they made the wrong decision blowing it out. And, you know, that could happen again. I'm not saying it will, but it could. And so I think the most important thing to understand is that it's a big transition we're going through here. We're trying to put the ocean into a swimming pool. And, you know, guess what? The swimming pool is going to be volatile. You know, you're going to get some big waves. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think it's important when, when, when those of us who are big advocates of Bitcoin, and I am a big advocate of Bitcoin, explain it. We got to tell, we got to explain the risk. We got to say to somebody, you know, I mean, I've had come, people come to me and say, well, should I buy it today at 60,000? Should I buy it today? What if it goes down? I say, look, don't buy more today than you would be comfortable holding if it went to 30, 20, 50. I'm not saying it will, but you know, be, you've got to understand that if it goes down, you're going to buy more. That's, that's the way you got to view it. And in fact, you know, there are now sites and great companies that do this dollar cost averaging for you. You know, Swan Bitcoin is one that I use. Um, and I, you know, I tell people just, just start buying some. You know, just start consistently buying some price goes up. Great. You're making money. Price goes down. Great. You're getting more for your dollar. So yeah. uh, so that's kind of my story. And I've as I you know, there were all the different parts along that story. I've kind of compressed it. But, you know, I mean, you had the forks. You had other people claiming that, you know, this wasn't, you know, the real Bitcoin that, that you know, Bitcoin cash was. I mean, you know, there were a lot of different points of, of fear and some of them were legitimate. I mean, when, you know, block size issues and so on and so forth. And and throughout all those, I was thinking, well, you know, this, this may not make it. I don't know. But I, you know, I'm certainly willing to take a speculation that it, that it will. And, you know, thankfully, the community has, has done a great job of holding it together. I mean, you know, I, I went to an MIT conference. I met a Bitcoin core developer. And he said, every now and then, I do worry that the thing will blow up. You know, this guy's a core developer. So, yeah. so you know, <laughs> so I, you know look, I, I, we've now got enough data. It's been through enough tests. And it's um, advanced enough that I'm quite comfortable that it's here to stay and it's gonna eventually demonetize everything. But um, the, the, to draw a straight line between there and two years from now that happening, uh, that's not my experience about how things happen in financial markets. It's gonna take some time. Yeah, yeah, that's a, you really put that succinctly. And uh, I appreciate the balanced approach too of being realistic with when you uh, mention this to people, knowing that like this isn't, uh, you know, it's not a simple straight line to from zero to infinity, like there's a lot of bumps in the road and you really have to, the responsibility is that you must learn about it to build your own conviction. No one can tell you with certainty about anything. Right. And, you know, I kind of went from seeing it as when I first uh, interacted with it as something that was risky. And then the more I understood it, the more I realized that actually the Canadian dollars I'm holding are risky and Bitcoin's not risky if you have a low enough uh, time preference. Exactly. And, you know, the all-time highs are funny because if you bought every all-time high of the past, you look like a genius right now because on a long enough time scale, it actually doesn't, it comes out in the wash, right? It, it really and, does. I mean, the, the, it's going gonna, it's gonna to multiply so much in value. I've said this in another podcast. I said, 
you know, some 10 years from now, some, you know, you'll tell somebody you bought it at 60 and they're going to go, really? You paid <laughs> yeah. 60,000 for one of these things. What are you kidding me? Yeah. And that frankly is one of the things I think I know in financial circles, it's hard that keeps people from buying it. I have some wealthy friends who have convinced that it's worthwhile and they look at it and they go, God, but you, you know, you bought a bunch at five and six and you're asking me to pay 60,000, you know, yeah. and they just can't get there. You know, it's like, well, I'm marking your old stuff up 10. And it's well, yeah, but it's, you know, there's a lot of time and a lot of adoption that's happened. And I said this too. I mean, networks grow exponentially in value. I mean, I, I had a similar experience with um, looking at Google and looking at Facebook and looking at Amazon. And in all three cases as a stock investor, I'd look at them and I'd say, this is too expensive. I can't buy it. Right. What I didn't understand, there's a new model or there's a model that I think the average stock and, you know, the average investor does not understand as clearly as they should. And that is that in networked environments where you've got Metcalf's law taking place, the network becomes more valuable with each additional owner or each additional participant. The, 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 the valuations, they just go up much more quickly than an average company that's not based on a network. And right. so, you know, that's and I think, And I think a lot of people use the mental model of equity investing, whereby yes. Amazon will inevitably reach a cap where to double or to triple where it is right now is, you know, there, there's like a taper, right? It comes to an asymptote where it's harder. The marginal um, difficulty of growing like 2X becomes very hard for a company like Amazon. And what they don't, what they fail to realize is that Bitcoin is not, does not fit neatly into that mental model, right? Global money is not the same as a company. And the fact that, you know, I understand why it's hard for people to buy in 10x of what it was before, right? And I think it's funny because every five years, people look back and the price that they didn't buy in at because it was too much compared to what it was five years earlier, the same thing happens. And this whole notion yes. that this is a an energy ball absorbing all inferior monetary instruments. And when you look at how many inferior monetary instruments there are in the world in trillions of dollars, you realize we are incredibly early and 21 million is not very many units. And that's no, like one thing that... Yeah, doesn't fact, doesn't compute. Yeah, the fact that it's a fixed sum uh, is a big deal. And yeah, it's got a long way to go. I mean, in that speech I gave in New Orleans, I had an adoption chart and it appears to us or me, my partner that, you know, we're kind of at the 10% area. So that's a long way to go. I mean, you know, eventually, you know, things do stop growing. I mean, it'll absorb the entire monetary universe. And then, and then it won't really necessarily be quoted in dollars. I mean, as we all dream of and, and think probably is likely, there'll be a time at which perhaps a Satoshi is how we measure a unit of, of purchasing power, but True. You know, we're a long ways from that. I mean, it's not going to happen tomorrow. So. Yes, you're right. Um, I want to talk about, so I first heard the word grokking Bitcoin. There's a, a book, <laughs> the name of the person uh, is escaping me right now, but I looked it up and I, and it turns out to grok means to understand profoundly and intuitively. So I kind of like that word. Yeah, and you know, word. on your, on your interview with Peter, um, you said, quote, I'm analytical. I like to study stuff. And based on your history with gold, your tech investing history, which we didn't go over, but you have a background as a, as a technology investor and a proponent of sound money, literally seems like you're the perfect, you were perfectly built to grok Bitcoin. And I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of curious, yeah. what, if any, were the most significant doubts or friction points that you encountered initially and sort of advice that you would give to sound money proponents that haven't yet taken the time to understand Bitcoin or don't actually understand uh, how important Bitcoin will be? Um, I'd love to hear your perspective on that because I'm, you know, I have um, people that I speak with that are extremely smart and they're sound money people. They understand the fundamentals of money, but they don't see Bitcoin as something worth learning about yet, which I constantly remind them like, 
the longer you take, the more you're going to pay for your Bitcoin. And that's the, that's how it should be. Um, yeah. But what were your major friction points? And what would you tell someone who hasn't yet like kind of hit the apex where now they're on the other side and they want to learn about it? Yeah, that's, that's a really great question. Nick. very important. I mean, I look, the Bitcoin standard, I think is a, is, is kind of, you know, a starting point because the first task, you know, you, you got to get the Austrian economic part. You got to get the monetary debasement part. And you're right. I, I really, I mean, I kind of feel like my whole life has been leading up to this. You know, I don't know. I mean, I just, I've always been, a, I've been a sound money person for 35 years. I've been a technology investor most of my career. And then this thing comes along and it's like, I'm, I'm kind of ashamed. I didn't fully get it and fully embrace it much earlier. I mean, I, you know, I, I was a little slow to the party because I was focused on my other businesses, but, but anyway, I, I, now I do get it. And I think that, you know, initially for my, for my, my two greatest concerns, and it took me time to overcome them. And I just, through reading and talking to people, I did overcome them. Where one, it's technology, can it blow up? I mean, we all had IBM PCs and they went blue screen. You know, I mean, it's just anything that's technically based, anyone who's been around the development of technology knows that technology is imperfect and things can go wrong. Right. And so, so that piece is always kind of there. I mean, I, I think the community and the system has, has been hardened enough that that's not going to fundamentally stop it. And that, you know, even, even some kind of a big problem would, would, you know, by the community get resolved. So, you know, I mean, 12 years of data and all the, the you know, the millions and millions of transactions that have taken place um, has kind of gotten me through that. I think the other thing, and a lot of people in my business have, have been fearful of this, and, and it still is a, it's an annoyance and a potential concern, um, is just kind of government response to it, right? If the government, if the government were smart, and some are, some aren't, they would understand what an existential threat this is to fiat currency. I mean, this is going to destroy fiat currency, which then is going to destroy large centralized governments, which to me is a beautiful thing. Right. But if you're a, if you're a statist, that is not a beautiful thing. <laughs> and and I, I have many, many gold friends who say to me, yeah, 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 I get it. It's great. It's a libertarian dream. It should work. It's, it's wonderful. But wait until the government outlaws it. And, you know, you guys are all screwed. They're, they're going to come in. They're going to tax it. They're going to take it away from you. They're going to shut it down. They're going to this, that, that. And I've, I've been pleasantly surprised at how much of the government has absorbed it and how they haven't stopped it and how the attempts to stop it like China haven't really been successful. And then how the system has gotten more and more hardened. And, and I think how the, how the young cyber hornets and, and, you know, the people of the millennial generation have kind of taken the view that, you know, the government's pretty corrupt and yeah, they can try and stop it, but guess what? You know, I've got my 12 words and, you know, F you government, I'm not playing. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, yep. and, and so, you know, and I mean, you got a Senator Loomis who's in favor of it. You've got others who are in favor of it. You've got, you know, pretty soon people will hold it. You've got these young, you know, politicians like, um, oh, I, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the guy's name, the guy, the mayor of Miami, um, you know, Suarez, who are, Suarez, right. Who are, who are positive on it. Um, you know, it's, I mean, you know, the government's going to be full of Bitcoiners one day. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, probably. And, and so, uh, so we're going to get there, but, but in the interim, you know, can they mess it up? Oh yeah. And they will. I mean, I, my opinion is they will, they, you know, there, there will be, you know, there will be people in the government who will want to mess this thing up and we'll try probably, you know, I mean, just the most recent thing that came out of the president's working group on this subject, where they're talking about making all the banks have FDIC insurance or making all the DeFi players have FDI. I mean, if that's the case, then, you know, Coinbase, Gemini, every exchange, I mean, you know how hard it is to get FDIC insurance? It's impossible. Right. So, I mean, and of course, that was all written by the banking lobby who's trying to protect their privilege. And, you know, I mean, they see this thing working and they're like, hey, we can't let this happen outside of our, our walls. You know, sure. we got to make we got to require that all these guys have FDIC insurance. You know, it's like, oh, 
give me a break. I mean, you know, one, I don't think that law will pass. And two, if it does pass, I think people are just going to run around it. Yep. And that's that's the thing. I mean, you know, the government does a lot of bad things. But one thing people don't often know is that, you know, in the 30s, the government confiscated gold. Only about a third of the people complied. I mean, the rest just and that was that was a much more obedient population than we have today. Right. I mean, think of the average American today versus the federal government. Right. I mean, I say, hey, confiscating 12 words today, like confiscating a physical thing with guns is one thing, but confiscating 12 words in someone's brain. Well, that's right. Yeah. Absent, absent torture. It's kind of hard to do, you know. Yeah. And so but but having said all of that, Nick, I mean, can they slow this thing down? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They definitely Surely. Can. I mean, yeah. let's let's not kid ourselves. I mean, you know, the person at the margin, if told that it's illegal, they're not going to go do it. You know, we're yeah. all we're all going to sit there and give them the finger, but they're not going to do it. You know, so yeah. and that would slow it down for sure. Um, I, I don't think I think we're beyond that point. I mean, I, I've said often in the past, I think the horse is out of the barn. So, yeah. you know, they got they got trouble on that score. So those are my two big things. And I've I've kind of overcome them pr- pretty much completely. I mean, I'm now 100 percent orange pilled. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. And now you're orange pilling a shitload of other people. And I well, think that's, that's what I'm almost... trying to do. I mean, I'm trying to yeah. do it in a way that doesn't destroy what used to be sound money, which is gold. You know, and so I'm not in this just for a number goes up play and I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't, you know, as some people in the space have said, gold is the enemy. Well, I, I strongly object to that. And I mean, maybe it is the enemy if, if all you want is number goes up. But actually what I want is I want sound money um, because sound money is what will improve our society. And there are two forms. There's analog sound money, which is gold. And there's digital sound money, which is Bitcoin. And so they're, you know, they're, they're, they're allies in the same fight. And I find it very disturbing or, or, or just it angers me when Bitcoin people, you know, attack gold people because we're on the same team. Yeah. And I definitely I have that as a point uh, later on in this conversation, because I think it's a really important one to mention. And one of my favorite mental models is this continuum of sound money where you have unsound money on one end at the extreme and you have sound money at the other. Bitcoin and gold have the real estate at the absolute end of sound money. They yes. will vary. They they will vary in their technological benefits and how they work in today's world, which is very different than the previous world we lived in. It seems to be changing quickly, but I don't think, I I think it's a, it's a bad model to take to look at gold and Bitcoin as enemies because they are, if there were two allies that were most closely connected and most on the end of sound money on that continuum, it's Bitcoin and gold. So I want to talk about that, but one thing, you know, I love Charlie Munger's quote where he says, show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcome. And I think if you look at the, and I really appreciate you mentioning those two points as your biggest obstacles. And when I think of the political um, obstacle, I think of, okay, well, what are the incentives? And if you understand that, um, you know, people in politics are smart. If you're smart and you play in a bad game, you do bad things, but inevitably they are smart. They're not that stupid. Although I think they're trapped in some respects right now. And they're also greedy. And if you're smart and you're greedy, you buy Bitcoin eventually and you understand that it's inevitable. And so, you know, show me the show me the incentives. The outcome is that the U.S. government will understand when they understand Bitcoin deeply enough that banning it once makes you have to ban it repeatedly, which only proves that you couldn't ban it. And they're not that stupid. And so I think it's going to be a rough, bumpy road. They're going to do they're going to screw things up a bunch of times along the way. But at the end of the day, like you said, all you can do is slow Bitcoin down and make it harder for people to obtain it in the short term. But inevitably, greedy, smart people buy Bitcoin. And the cool thing is that they buy it for those reasons. And then freedom tech is snuck in, as Alex Gladstein says, and it ends up just giving everyone the most powerful shield to protect our time and energy. And um, I think that's a very 
it, it makes me so optimistic actually for, oh, for a yeah. better it makes, world. It makes me incredibly optimistic. I mean, I love the game theory aspect of it, which the only defense against Bitcoin is to buy Bitcoin. I mean, <laughs> yeah. just, and you're and not allowed really, to not play. Really, so that, yeah, yeah, it really leaves the opponents kind of in a, you know, in a bad place because once you fully understand it, then, then the inevitability of it all just kind of falls on you and you're kind of like, gosh, I don't own enough of it, you know? And so, you know, as I said in my speech, it's a monetary monster. I mean, it's a sound money monster. It's, you know, and, and look, it, it, it is going to demonetize gold someday, but between now and then, gold's got a lot of upside because there's a lot of fiat that needs to be destroyed and yes. that fiat will be destroyed. I mean, you know, the, the trust in government money is going, you know, in the, in the wrong way quickly, you know, and Bitcoin yep. shows that and, and soon the gold price will reflect that too. I mean, it's been hard to be a gold guy for the last year because we've had a serious gold correction from the highs in August of 2020. But, you know, I've seen this before. I mean, uh, you know, the, um, the, at any given point in time, it'll look like gold is a better thing or it'll look like Bitcoin is a better thing. I mean, I remember 2019, early 2020, where, you know, gold was ripping and Bitcoin was just kind of stuck. Right. You know? And so there'll be times when one looks better than the other. And, and you can't dispute that Bitcoin is on an absolute basis. Bitcoin's absolutely crushed gold since inception. I mean, right. it's just crushed it. But part of that was the adoption from, you know, when you're going from, you know, 10 pennies to $60,000, I mean, you're going to get some incredible compounding numbers that are, that are going to be harder to achieve at a $60,000 base. Not to say that it's not going to continue to beat gold, because I think it will on an absolute return basis by quite a, quite a large amount. But I think the notion that gold is going to go lower, that's in my mind, that's extremely flawed. I mean, gold is going to go much higher. Yeah. And if we look at that continuum, sound money, unsound money, there's like a Pac-Man at one end. That Pac-Man is Bitcoin and gold, right. the most sound forms of money. And that Pac-Man just goes and munches down all the other unsound money with fiat and all of its derivatives, which yep. I think people don't understand how, like when we say fiat derivatives, people underestimate how much value, how much monetary energy there is stored in fiat derivatives that are essentially yeah. broken, uh, oh, hands yeah. down broken. And so there's a lot, there's a lot to go around. Bitcoin will eat the majority, gold will eat a certain portion, but that portion is so big that even a smaller portion is incredibly huge. And I think Bitcoin actually eliminates the, the reason why gold is actually artificially suppressed. And when Bitcoin gives gold us threat. the shield, gold blasts through and can do what it should have done actually for the past probably 30 years. Yeah, um, no, gold, is, gold has been horribly suppressed. And, and yeah, and, and Bitcoin is Bitcoin is the you know the tip of the spear, and I love it. I mean, for that reason, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, it's the thing that's going to help topple these folks. But and as you point out, yes, I mean, the, I've used these numbers before, but I think they're, they bear repeating because they're just so important to me. You know, there's 450 trillion my calculation of financial stuff in the world, and that's before the derivatives. That's just the bonds, cash, stock. You know, right. what we call financial. There's another uh, I don't know 500 of real estate, maybe more. But 450 trillion of financial stuff. And then there's one point some odd trillion of Bitcoin, all the tradable gold. I mean, everyone says gold's 10 trillion. Well, not really, because there's a lot in museums, there's a lot in antiquities, there's a lot in central banks. The tradable gold is actually closer to four or five trillion in, in coins and bullion. And then there's uh, about a trillion or so in gold mining companies. So, so if you add it all up, say there's seven trillion in this, what I call sound money stuff, mm -hmm. and there's 450 trillion in this non sound money stuff, you know, that 450, some big piece of that 450 is coming after that seven, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, I mean, even if it just went back to, I've said this in, uh, recently, even if it just went back to that 1980 level when gold was, you know, when gold was in the process of demonetizing the US dollar because of the inflation before Volcker came in, 
you know, it, it was 7% of total outstanding assets. Well, 7% of you know, 45 would take you to the low 30s, which would be 5x where you are today. And by the way, I think this will be much worse than 70. So, sure. you know, both of these things are going to really work and they're going to really work in a big way. And, you know, I, I, what I feel sorry for is people who aren't aware of or don't understand this whole issue, because, you know, in 10 or 15 years, you know, the people who, who had their savings and their, their monetary energy stored in a form of sound money, you know, are going to be okay. I mean, they'll be, you know, perhaps in Bitcoin terms, they're going to be very okay, but even in gold and silver, you're going to be okay. Yeah. But if, you know, if you're in bonds, you know, sorry, you know, no soup for you. I mean, it, it's, <laughs> it's going to be tough. I mean, it really is. And I, you know, I don't, I don't know how else to say it, and I, you know, but it just, it is what it is. I mean, that's what the analysis tells all of us. That's why we are where we are. Yeah. Reality doesn't care about our feelings. That's kind of the no, it of it. Doesn't. Yeah. And, you know, Bitcoin is reality. Bitcoin is truth. Sound money is truth and uh, unsound money is lies. And, you know, bringing us to that, you know, you had these, there's these six words that go around in Bitcoin. They're literally written right here on my heart because I think they're so important. Fix the money, fix the world. And, yeah. you know, I was listening to your speech again this morning and I picked up, picked out a line that I would love for you to unpack for us. And I quote, the money is the problem. It's easy to draw a line and connect the dots between nearly all of society's ills and the devolution of our system into one based upon unsound money. And to someone listening who doesn't really have a robust macro understanding of the world, this can sound like almost an exaggeration, right? Like every time I say that to people, they kind of roll their eyes if they don't understand how things are actually working. But I found it to be really true. And I'd love for you to talk about how unsound money has degraded our civilization and how sound money can restore it. Because I really think that Money is both the fundamental problem and the fundamental solution. Unsound money being the problem, sound money being the solution. So I'd love to hear you unpack, fix the money, fix the world, and what that means to you and um, how you would explain that to someone who maybe doesn't have a full perspective on why that, why that is true. Yeah, it's, it's tricky and it takes a little bit of time, but I'll try and keep it as simple as possible. I mean, you know, the Bible talks about honest weights and measures and until... 1971, you know, we were on a gold standard. I mean, the money in the system, I mean, it wasn't perfect because it was only on an international basis, but, you know, the money in the system was somewhat sound and the, the system, I mean, and, and the world, by the way, lived more or less on a gold standard from 1789 when the U.S. was founded on well, Britain before that, but, you know, all the way to 1913 when the Federal Reserve was founded. And it's not just the money, it's the money and the credit system because the Federal Reserve, by enabling kind of unlimited credit that could be bailed out, added to the underlying problem. But the point is, when, when the money is sound, it's hard for financial people to cheat. And um, the, you know, the financial people cheating is kind of the same as in the Middle Ages, you know, the, the, you know, the, the barkeeper watering the whiskey or watering the beer. I mean, it's just like, you know, yeah, okay, you can, you know, you make X amount of whiskey, you make X amount of beer, you know, you charge them out for it. But if you put some water in there, hey, guess what? You can get some more as a result of it. And so, you know, the when we went off the gold standard in 71, um, financial people took advantage of that and, and, and learned how to, you know, cheat the system by printing money and using it to dilute the underlying savings. And so there's this thing, as I'm sure you're aware, and maybe your listeners are too, called the cotillion effect, where the people who are the first people to get the printed money get a severe advantage over those who are the later people. And so when you, you know, there's, look, changing the supply of money in the system does not change the supply of goods and services. So the system is built on, on goods and services. We've got X number of cars, trucks, tires, people, you know, medical care, all these things. These are the, there's a system that provides real stuff that we need, food, et cetera. 
And then there's money. And money is the, is the liquid thing that we've all agreed upon is the mechanism for you know, pricing those things so that you know, a tire costs this, a medical service costs that, food costs that. And so when you start, when, when, you know, and, and if you have a fixed amount of money and a fixed amount of goods and services, or you have some release relationship between the two, then prices are stable. Um, but when you start to dilute the money as a result of government spending, government printing, government monetization, which is going on enormously right now, um, you obviously, you know, you haven't increased, we've increased the money supply 40% last two years. We haven't increased, we haven't increased the goods and services 40%. There aren't 40% more cars being made. There's not 40% more medical care being delivered. So, you know, it's pretty simple. It's, it's, it's fifth grade stuff, right? I mean, you know, more money out there, same amount of services. Guess what? The prices for those services, is going to go up. And the people who get the money first, and that, that would be Wall Street, and that would be the financial types who can borrow at very, very low interest rates. I mean, zero interest rate policy is, is really a crime because what it's basically saying is that people who have saved you don't have any right to that savings or to earn a return on that savings, right? And so people who can borrow at 0% interest rates and buy things, they benefit at the expense of everyone else who doesn't get the new money until later on in the process and therefore has to pay a higher price. And so this leads to all kinds of perverse things. I mean, it's part of the reason why we've seen such enormous wealth inequality. It's part of the reason why the minimum wage has not kept up with the living standard or with the cost of living in the United States. I mean, it, it's you know, and there are all kinds of good charts. If you Google, you know, 1971 productivity growth versus, um, you know, money supply growth. And what you'll see is that, you know, productivity has gone up enormously, but the, you know, the, the part that's gone or versus labor short share of income, you know, labor hasn't gotten any benefit of that. I mean, if you think about it, when, you know, think of all the things we've invented in the last 40 years, all the computers, all the technology, the internet, everything else. I mean, we ought to all be working 20 hour work weeks, right? I mean, we're doing right. things so much more efficiently than we yeah. did them 40 years ago. I mean, our lives ought to be enormously better. And they're really not. I mean, they're somewhat better, but they're not nearly as, as much better as they should be. And the reason for that is that the people of top have figured out how to skim off, you know, all the cream because they, they get access to the, you know, to the stocks and the low cost money. And the average guy who just goes to work every day, you know, he, he pays, he does, his salary doesn't go up and his wages, you know, are, are stuck and the cost of everything he buys goes up. And so, so unsound money, really robs from the common man. And, it, and this has been known, this is not some new innovation. This isn't Larry thinking this up. I mean, this has been proven for hundreds of years and many, many people have written about it. So unsound money does not, prevents people from saving the fruits of their labor. And so what, yet if you're smart and you're financially driven and you understand how to use leverage and you understand how to buy things, you know, borrow cheaply, well, you know, it, it can make you very, very rich. And that's why we have so many, you know, millionaires and billionaires who have figured out how to play the cotillion effect. And, um, you know, but the average person doesn't have those assets and they don't have that sophistication. And so, so it's a very, very unfair system. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think the, it's funny because I look at like the, the Bernie Sanders and the AOCs whose policies I completely disagree with, but, but they've identified the problem correctly. I mean, a lot of the things that are going on in society that are unfair, you know, they're correct. I mean, it really is unfair what's happened the way, you know, uh, the, the misbalance, you know, and I mean, in 71, you know, one working adult could support a family where, you know, the, um, you know, the other adult did not work and they had, you know, time for a vacation. And now, you know, now we've got, I mean, you almost have to have a two income family if you're middle class, you know, or else, or else it's, it's pretty tough, right? And so, it's, it's very clear to me 
that going off the gold standard has thrown the society into a very bad position and that all the problems that we see now are, you know, I mean, the politics, everything at the, at the base layer, it's the money. And even, even the wars, I mean, even the Vietnam War, in fact, it was the Vietnam War and the Great Society of Johnson that forced us to go off the gold standard. And so if you have, if you have a sound money standard, you're not going to have as much war and you're not going to have, um, you know, as much inequality. It just, it just works out that way naturally. Um, and it's, it's not simple to explain that. And, and, and the average person doesn't get it. Right. Um, because they haven't been taught macroeconomics and they haven't studied the history of all this. But those of us who've studied it know this with absolute certainty. And so I would submit to you that Bitcoiners and gold people and sound money people are actually people who are advocating for improving our society as much or more so than, you know, the woke liberals who want to, you know, hand out money and help the poor and, you know, come at it from a different, come at it from a socialistic point of view. I think that if we do it, if we do it in a rigid rigid capitalistic point of view based on fair rules, then all that other stuff isn't necessary. So, yeah. And I think so many people equally want to improve the world, but the biggest distinction I see is that a lot of people want to improve the world, but don't have a deep enough understanding of the, this complex system that's developed to actually point their finger to the right solution, right? Like the liberals right. who, who want things to be fair, who want to reduce inequality. Great. They, like you said, Bernie Sanders made the right diagnosis. The problem is, is, the root cause of that diagnosis, right? Like I come from background in health as a physical therapist. You can make a correct diagnosis, right? Someone's shoulder hurts. You can say you have a rotator cuff injury. We can all make the right diagnosis. The problem is if we identify different root causes, then we apply radically different solutions. And if you identify the wrong root cause, then you essentially put more complexity in the system and you have to backtrack eventually. And so I right. think like one of my favorite sayings from Jeff Booth is when money is scarce, everything else is abundant. When money is abundant, everything else is scarce. And like you said, even if we take supply and demand dynamics where like, okay, we have way more money, the same level of supply, that alone will make prices increase. But I think what people underestimate is that money is this foundational tool for us to communicate and coordinate in a massive society that goes way beyond like Dunbar's number of 150. When you mess with the language that we use to communicate, you mess with our ability to coordinate. And even if supply and demand dynamics stay whole, stay solid, the fact that we can't coordinate means that we're going to shock supply even more because we can't even produce what we used to produce because now our ability to communicate and coordinate like has been screwed up right we've we've messed with the fundamental language when we change the 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 amount of money in the system and people need to recalibrate and if we're changing that language so frequently that people are constantly recalibrating they're misallocating and mispricing things and you know i've heard you say prices are the most important piece of information in human society and I'd love for you to kind of unpack that a little bit, because I really feel that when you distort the most important piece of society, it's really no shock that society starts to unwind and unravel. And I think that really is something that is so important that no, no one seems to understand that, right? They think prices yeah. are just, well, this is how much things cost. It's like, well, actually, prices are, are a language that allow every single person to engage in every decision throughout the day in a rational way because they have a sense of certainty of their base unit of account. And when that's, that's right. gone, everything unravels. Well, that's exactly right. And um, that's exactly right. I mean, prices, prices are the base level of knowledge that we all have. And it's, it's, it's knowing what the price of something is that allows somebody to make a calculation and say, okay, it's worth it to me at that level. And, you know, obviously if the price of something goes up a lot, 
producers will say, oh, I can produce that for a lower cost and, and the market is telling me I should. And so I'll go produce that for a lower cost and so on and so forth. The thing, the point that Jeff Booth makes that I think is so important and a point I think we should touch upon is that, you know, we, we've been working with an economic model that's broken and in part it's broken because Keynes was wrong and Keynes, Keynes is broken, okay? Yes. Keynes had the view that the problem of the Great Depression, I mean, all, all of this grew out of the Great Depression which was really just a large credit bubble at first. And, but Bernanke, Keynes, et cetera, all the people who studied it came to the conclusion that, oh, we, demand was too low. And so it is now incumbent upon the government to create demand where it may not have existed before. And once we create demand, the animal spirits will rush in and we'll start building things and we'll start, the economy will start running again. You know, in, in that particular case, it was like, let's start a world war. You know, I mean, that happened organically, but you know, and, and of course, everyone I know says the World War is what pulled us out of the Depression, and to a degree it did, but, um, but you didn't have to start a World War to do it. <laughs> the, the, um, but the, the notion that, you know, more and more and more of something is the solution to the problem, and, and that increased demand is the solution to the problem, think about that, take that to its end point. Okay, so in a planet with limited resources, we're going to just increase demand forever, you know? I mean, well, how does that, how's that going to work out? Yeah, we're going to run out of it's absurd. absurd. We're going to we're going to run out of resources and the and the entire planet's going to collapse. I mean, this is St. Matthew Island up in Alaska. You know, Google that in the reindeer example where, you know, once they ran out of lichen, they all died. So um, the fact of the matter is that, no, we do not need to increase demand forever. What we need to do is we need to increase efficiency. We need to increase efficiency forever. We need to figure out how to get more with less. And that's productivity and efficiency is what it's all about. And if you think about it, Efficiency is actually deflationary. And so the notion that Keynesians have and that most other people have is that a little bit, you know, even the Federal Reserve says, well, 2% inflation is good. You need 2% inflation in order to get the, keep the economy alive and growing. Horseshit. You do not. You actually want deflation. You want things to cost less in the future than they cost today. We That's want deflation. It. The people want deflation. The people, people want, yes, the other the system, people who are in control. Right. But the point is deflation signals efficiency. And of course, that's what Jeff Booth is a friend is all about. He basically said, look, you know, we need a deflationary currency so we can set up a deflationary system so that, you know, your savings actually become worth more over time. And people figure out they're very careful about where to invest. So such that it creates more efficiency because it's the efficiency that provides. I mean, if you can provide twice as much food for the same amount of input, well, then you've really just gotten richer, you know, yeah. even though, and the price, of, even though the price of food may have fallen. And that's a good thing, you know, for the average working person. I mean, you know, it's interesting if you study, if you go study the period from 1800 to 1913, I mean, the wages did not go up that much, but the cost of everything came down enormously over that time frame because so in relative terms, your purchasing power so, goes up. So in relative terms, your purchasing power went up. So it was a deflationary century in effect you know, with gold and silver as your standards for money, yet, you know, everyone's, I mean, the, there has never been a greater increase in the average um, quality of life for human beings than that 100 years. Never, ever. I mean, people went from, you know, being basically, you know, um, hard scrabble farmers, most of the country in 1800 to, you know, having Sears Roebuck delivering great stuff to their door and they could afford it, you know, yeah. and, and it was, it was stunning. And so, you know, and, and that could happen again. And that's what deflation is about. And that's why we need deflation. The whole notion that deflation is bad and that Keynesian growth is good, that's wrong. 
That's completely wrong. And it's going to get proven to be wrong. And Bitcoin's going to do it. Yes. And I think that this whole interventionist perspective that Keynesians take, I see a big parallel in that with health, where it's like, my perspective is that the body knows exactly what it's supposed to do. It's a self-healing, self-organizing system. All you have to do is stop doing what you're doing to cause the problem. And the body knows what to do, right? It it, it self-organizes naturally. And I think this whole notion that we discount the collective intelligence that is found in free markets such that we say, well, things could go bad. So we need to control it to make sure that they don't get bad. And my favorite analogy to this weird mental model that governments are using to, to justify their interventionism is this sort of analogy of forest fires where, you know, if you try and prevent small fires throughout the year, you interrupt this natural process of, all of the undergrowth and the deadwood being burned away at regular periods. And that is kind of the cleansing that helps prevent um, the massive fires. And if you prevent the small fires, right, if you stop small fire, if you say all fires are bad, we must stop them all. You essentially accumulate this massive stockpile of undergrowth and debris and deadwood. And then when the forest fire does come, it burns the entire forest down, even the mature trees, because you've essentially added fuel to the fire unintentionally. And I think this notion that Refusing to allow zombie companies to fail, refusing to allow any economic correction to happen, eliminates the recalibration that's essentially needed to avoid the massive forest fire. And I think we're long overdue for maybe the biggest forest fire anyone's ever seen in their entire lives. And it, it's very, it's very concerning. I think we just need to accept that like nature knows what to do. Our collective intelligence knows exactly what is most efficient if we are allowed to act freely. And it's so freaking egocentric and weird that we just think, oh, we know better than every human's intelligence put together. And yeah. that's what we're going to use to justify fucking up the unit of account because we know better. And I think it's so, it's so silly and it's not grounded in reality. And eventually reality hurts the longer you've, you've been disconnected from it. I, and I, I, think- couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more, Nick. I mean, I think that's a great, that's a great model. And I've, I've, I've used that example myself and um, yeah, sadly, this next fire might be a pretty big one, right? Yeah. Um, but, but I mean, it, 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 it is true that, you know, you can, you know, you can only put so many fingers in the dike and, um, you know, the, the dike is going to burst eventually. And, and so, um, I think yeah, Bitcoin I, creates, uh, a superpower fire fighting force that will help suppress the severity of this fire, but, but it doesn't change the fact that it's going to hurt a lot for a lot of people. Yeah, it's going to hurt for a lot of people. I mean, the one the one thing I have observed, though, I've read a lot of history in that, you know, when these monetary collapses occur, I mean, they obviously create an enormous amount of pain and sometimes lead to bad outcomes. But, you know, if, if we can avoid a war, we can avoid a shooting war you know, or an internal war, um, you know, all the all the buildings and all the crops and all the productivity and all the people are we're still here. Right. The wealth is in different hands, uh, that's for sure. But, you know, when you go back to a sound money standard, people self-organize and, and things get fixed relatively quickly. So, you know, my view is, look, it's bad. Um, the sooner we face it, the better. And so, you know, in a, in a somewhat backwards way, I sometimes kind of root for it to happen quicker rather than slower because we all have limited time frames in our lives. And right. I'd like to see us, I'd like to see us get to the better side of this because, I'm quite optimistic that on the other side of this transition, you know, we're going to, we're going to have a real renaissance of, you know, productivity and improved lives. And that, you know, this is a great planet with great people and things are going to be much better. 
Um, I, but I do, you know, I do think this one will be for one for the history books. Everyone will see, you know, were you around in the collapse of, you know, 20 X yeah. um, and it'll be written about for hundreds of years. And, and I said, I think I said it in my speech, our, our grandkids are going to say, you know, what were they thinking? Letting, you know, some small group of people control the money. You know, yeah. what the hell were they thinking? I mean, uh, you know, setting the interest rates and all that stuff. That's insane. Of course it was going to blow up. I mean, you know, I, you guys, you're younger than me, but I remember, you know, the Soviet Union was, you know, very famous for setting the price of grain, you know, in the 60s and 70s. And, you know, of course, if they set it, you know, too low, everyone starved. And if they set it, you know, too high, the government, you know, had to print a lot of money, went bankrupt for, for having, you know, and they created too much grain, they had surpluses. And you just, you know, you can't have, I mean, free markets work, right? And you have to fundamentally believe that. Um, yeah. And you have to see it and you have to observe history and to have seen it. And, you know, off you go and, and it all works. But, you know, sadly, I mean, there, there are a lot of characters in this whole play and this whole thing that, you know, what they did was they, they let their own egos get in front of, you know, hundreds of years of history. I mean, I, I, I think one of the biggest culprits is Ben Bernanke because he, he misinterpreted the Great Depression. And then based on that misinterpretation and his Keynesian leanings said, you know, don't worry we've got control of this, we can handle it, which was enormous hubris on his part. And then, you know, he, he, he came out with his money speech where he said, you know, deflation is horrible. Look at what, and, and by the way, deflation is not horrible, but he said it was because yeah, deflation Kane's is reality. De ben, deflation is reality, but deflation is horrible, but don't worry, we can solve it because we have this technology called a printing press. Yeah. And it was, it was kind of like, you know, the great Oz. I mean, you know, ignore the man behind the curtain. We've got it all figured out, guys. It's all good. Yeah. And, and that's how this thing has spun further and further and further out of control. And that's how, you know, the wealth inequalities today, the imbalances today, the bubble in the stock market, the bubble in the bond market. And by the way, the rise of Bitcoin. I mean, I love that, you know, Satoshi, you know, in 08 was really pissed off about what happened with the GFC and said, this is bullshit. You mean to tell me I work and I make money and these guys can just print money and, and, and debase the value of what I made, water my beer, you know, to hell with that. You know, there's a there's a technical there's a technological solution for that, and I figured it out. You know, and he created this brilliant thing, which, you know, my view will be viewed in the in the scope of history as one of the most. You know, it'll be like Gutenberg with a printing press. I mean, it'll be one of the most important inventions in 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 this period of the history of mankind. I mean, it's yeah. gonna, it's going to change the world. And so, I think you know, what's, what's cool for, what's, yeah, what's cool for us is that you know here we are, we get to live through it in real time. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, and, and I mean, on Twitter and so on and so forth, it's so much fun. I mean, I, I just love the comments of all the other Bitcoiners. I mean, somebody made some comment, Hillary came out recently and knocked Bitcoin and somebody made some comment, like, it's so much fun to watch the establishment squirm as, yeah. as, as their bullshit system crumbles. And because it, it is, I mean, it's their bullshit system is crumbling and, and it's um, getting goofier and goofier. Like it's getting to the point now where I almost don't believe some of the things I see. And I'm like, this is how much they're having to reach now to really justify this. And, you know, uh, I kind of, th my biggest fear is I think that our biggest opportunity and the biggest vulnerability is actually just our financial illiteracy. Right. Yeah. And I think that even like the fed essentially being a money cartel designed to rob people and being a privately owned organization uh, most people don't know that. Like most people right. actually think that the Fed is a government run organization. And I think that just is a beautiful demonstration of widespread financial literacy. And I think that is maybe our biggest vulnerability because what if they blame this giant forest fire on Bitcoin and people well, just simply don't have the understanding to know no, that we, that's not true. 
Yeah, we've had dis- we've had dis- I've had a lot of discussions with people. I, I think there's no doubt they might try and blame. You know, hey, you Bitcoiners and gold folks, you ruined our beautiful system. Yeah. Um, having said that, though, you know, the, the bottom line is when the money becomes worthless and the government prints the money, I, I think most Americans can connect the dots. I mean, I agree. You I know, think people are fundamentally I, smart. They're just yeah. so squeezed I mean, they, right now because broken money. Squeezed and they're not focused on it. And, yeah. you know, they're watching the latest movie or the latest pop star or this, that or the other. I mean, I get a kick out of that. You remember the recent or not recent, but the video of the guy out in L.A., um, you know, offering 10 ounces of silver or Hershey bar and everyone took the Hershey bar. You know, I mean, <laughs> the, the, the average, uh, you know, the average person is not that financially literate and they shouldn't have to be, honestly, if the system were fair, I agree. they should just worry. You know, if they had a fair system, they could just sit there and worry about doing their job and raising their family and save money. Right? Yeah. And saving money. And they shouldn't have to be, you know, um, understand macroeconomics, but but, you know, in, in these periods of great change, one of which we're in right now, it's going to become very, very relevant. And, and it's interesting. I mean, it, it cuts across education layers. I mean, I know people who have all the education who are incredibly smart, who do not get this. And then I have, you know, I have a guy who is a handyman and does the work on my house and is, you know, very blue collar, super solid guy. He can do absolutely anything. He's, he's brilliant. And, you know, he, he gets it totally. He's like, why would I ever save in dollars? Every extra dollar I get, I buy silver. You know, he says, I know what's going to happen. And he can see it like it's like it's as clear as day. So once you see no, it, you can't unsee it. I think that's a really fundamental part. And it's yeah, just, we got to yeah. get people, we got to wipe their lenses clean of all the blurriness right. that is. And I, I really feel for people, like it hurts my heart to see people that I know and love that are essentially trying to not drown right now because of all the crap going on. They don't have any extra bandwidth. They can't take care of themselves because their time is withering away as it's being stolen. They have less time to understand health and take care of themselves, but they don't have any extra bandwidth to understand money, despite money being the fundamental problem that's causing them to get their time stolen. So it's a, you know, it is a hard problem to solve, but I think it's all touch points. Every touch point someone gets with Bitcoin is a confirmation that Bitcoin still exists. Bitcoin is must be important because I keep hearing the word and you reach a threshold of touch points where eventually you're like, I'm going to look into this thing a little bit more. And that's, I've asked so many people their Bitcoin stories, and it sounds like a fundamental element where people are like, I heard about it. I didn't look into it. I heard about it, looked into it a little bit. And they reach a point where they're like, I'm going to look into this a lot because now that I have some sort of touch, uh, now that I'm actually playing with it and I see it in real life, how it works, and I'm understanding really the broad general things and thinking like, okay, this kind of sounds like it works. Eventually they hit the threshold. And I agree with you. I know people who are extremely smart. It seems like working in finance is like literally the biggest barrier because I think it actually destroys all mental models of how you view the world your whole life. And so those are the people who it's hardest to understand Bitcoin, which I'm cool with because if the average person understands it quicker and can front run the rich people, I'm, I'm for that. But (laughs) I, I, I really think that like people just have to have repeated touch points and actually become aware that a problem exists. And I'm just trying to get a, get better at framing the problem of time theft. Um, because I think that's, that seems to be my most potent way in. That was my way in for my mom. She was like, I don't, I, my money works. My house is getting more worth more. I'm okay. And I kind of said like, mom, I'm not going to stop mentioning this because if you knew someone was stealing from me and I didn't know you would want to keep telling me until I clued in. And that was my way in. And she's like, okay, let's talk about it. And then now she owns Bitcoin. And it's like, that gives me hope because my mom can own Bitcoin 
anyone can own Bitcoin. Oh yeah, that, no, that's that's a great that's a great model. I mean, it's think of it in the Gladwell terms. I mean, it's like, you know, you know, we're at the ten percent point, and it's going to continue to grow. Right. And the other, you know, the other, I mean, there's, I'm sure, you know, we all know of Gresham's law, which is, you know, good money pushes out bad. And, you know, you save the good money, you spend the bad. And so, you know, we're now in a period where the inflation is really starting to be obvious to everybody. I mean, I go to a gym where, you know, the people of every striper at this gym, and I, I don't think I've had a, a conversation with anybody recently where they haven't bitched about inflation. And good. so it's on the right. Radar. Good. And, and, and so, because that, that's the gateway entry into a discussion about, well, you know why we have the inflation, right? It's all this money printing and the government's out of control and the currency's unsound. Right. And, oh, by the way, there's some ways to address that. You know, you can solve that. You know, you can buy hard assets. You can buy real estate. You can buy gold. You can buy silver. You can buy Bitcoin. And, and you should because, you know, unfortunately, this trend isn't going to reverse. It's going to actually get worse. And that's what will happen. I mean, you know, gold will go through 2000 sometime in the next year, you know, and Bitcoin will go through 100,000 sometime in the next year. And, you know, it, it'll start to accelerate. And eventually, you know, what we've got here is a monetary fire burning and everybody's in the theater and, you know, the smoke is starting to come up. Maybe 10 percent of the people are saying they're like, hey, I'm, I'm headed for the exits, you know, and the yeah. other 90 percent are going to start smelling the smoke and they're going to go. Oh shit! You know I'm out of here. You know, and at I some point, it's going to happen quick too. It's going to be well, scary how quick. At some point, it actually yeah. could happen pretty damn quickly. I mean, yeah. you know, it was happening in the late 1970s. I mean, gold went from $35 and 71 to $800 and you know 79, and that last period was enormous. You know, there was a real accelerant in the last couple of years, and 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 that's you know that's what's it's Hemingway, right? It's it's slowly you know suddenly then or slowly than all at once right i mean you um it, it you know it could become pretty obvious at some point that the dollar is really losing its value and that's you know we've seen this this is we, we've never seen it in the well in modern times i mean i guess in rome you saw it but in modern times you've never seen it with the with the world's reserve currency which is the dollar right. but we've seen it in a lot of smaller countries i mean venezuela zimbabwe weimar germany i mean the list is long there are hundreds of countries that have overprinted their money, their money and the money becomes worthless. And so, you know, I don't see why that model can't apply to a larger thing like the world's reserve currency. I, I think it's going to take more time. Right. You know, I don't think it's going to, you know, in spite of the way we all think it's going to one day just happen. You know, I've, I've watched financial things long enough to know that I believe it's, it's going to take time. I apologize for all the background noise here i got a, i got a it's house full of thanksgiving guests <laughs> it's all good i appreciate you taking the time uh in the, in the thanksgiving period larry and yeah I, I, parker lewis always says you know we look at venezuela as a fundamentally different system than the u.s dollar for example but the reality is that they're simply on a different part of the curve we're on the same curve and yes. the the bigger the more robust the currency um the longer span that curve follows but the curve yeah. uh, the exponential nature of that curve still applies. And so once we start to hit the vertical part of the hockey stick, which I think we're starting to do, you know, like you said, 40% of US dollars are printed in the last two years, like right. that doesn't even compute for most people because it's so astounding. And, you know, I live in Canada. Uh, I heard um, Samson um, Mao from Blockstream say like in the past 12 months, and this was on a podcast a while ago, in the past 12 months, we've created more Canadian dollars than the previous 40 years combined. And right. I, you just have to sit with that and be like, that doesn't even make sense. I don't, it's hard to even know how to apply that into your worldview, especially if you're not literate with 
understanding money, but that's the reality. And I think, you know, back to your thing about, you know, buy hard assets. The coolest thing that I have conversations uh, that I tell people in conversations is that like, I have young people that I speak to and they're like, I can't buy a house. I'm never going to be able to buy a house. I've just given that up. And you know, what I tell them is, well, there's property that's way better than physical real estate and you can buy it in $10 increments and you can buy it anytime you want. And it's available to everyone and it's getting, and it's like, this is a new form of money that's monetizing right in front of our eyes. You can buy it just like anyone else. And so I think that gives people hope to say like, wow, I actually can acquire hard assets. I can't acquire a home. I can't acquire a big sluice of property, but I can buy a piece of property that's better than physical property right now that yeah. will allow me to buy physical property in future. And I think that that really opens up people's that's eyes. Another, and that's, that's another good way of putting it. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. Yeah, I think it's really important. And let's talk about Bitcoin as a shield. You know, like I've heard you say numerous times, theft is wrong. Yeah. And I completely agree. And I think everyone fundamentally agrees with that. Um, and, you know, maybe the people in power are fooling themselves into thinking that what they're doing is not theft so that they can sleep at night. But the reality is, is that when you create money out of nowhere, you're stealing from every single person who's holding that money. Right. And, you know, how do you explain how money creation is theft? Um, just in very simple terms, like to, if a 12 year old said, why does creating money steal from me? Um, say they hold US dollars. And, and then explain how, you know, my model is that Bitcoin is this shield that everyone now has that is impenetrable, even with the most power in the world, and it's called encryption. And, you know, how do you explain money creation being theft? And, and um, do you think of Bitcoin as a shield? And if so, kind of like, I'd love to hear you just riff on that for a bit. Yeah, sure. So, well, money creation is theft because um, money supply should be somewhat fixed or... Um, you know, at least grow at a very slow and controlled rate, the way the production of gold on, on top of the outstanding amount of gold, you know, the stock to flow was um, a very high stock, very low flow. Um, you know, so money is, is, is something that represents a claim. And we talked about this earlier, claim on goods and services. And so, you know, I mean, as an example, let's, let's go to the other extreme. Let's say the government one day decided to send everybody a check for a million dollars, okay, in, in the country. You know, so suddenly everybody had a million dollars more of spending power. And of course, most people would look at that and go, oh, great. I'm going to go buy a new car. I'm going to go buy this. I'm going to go buy that. But we didn't create new cars. We didn't create new houses. We didn't add anything to the supply of goods and services. And so they would all be bidding against each other because somebody who had that car, that house would say, huh, you know, I, I, I've got more demand for this than I and I'm going to up my prices. I mean, you've seen this with cars in the, on the lots now where they're having the delivery charge. It's as big, you know, half as big or as big as the, the MSRP, right? Crazy. Just because they're not getting cars, you know, they're not getting new cars. They know they can charge more for them. So, right. so just think of money as a representation of goods and services. You increase the money, you've not increased the goods and services. You've, you've stolen from everybody who had the money before. Everybody who had, so if, if somebody, if somebody in that example did not get the million dollar check, they would suddenly be relatively poorer than everybody else who did get it because they would not have the purchasing power there. They just lost out on all that dilution. Um, Bitcoin being, you know, self-sovereign. I mean, I, I like the, you know, I like the, the Jason Lowry thing where he basically says, look, Bitcoin, you know, it, it makes an individual as sovereign as a government or an army. I mean, in the mm -hmm. past, you know, armies and countries and all were, were, you know, they were created to defend, you know, wealth, um, both, you know, physical wealth and, and, and land wealth. And, um, and, and that was necessary because if you didn't have one, somebody could invade you and take your land or 
somebody could invade you and, you know, and, and take all your wealth, you know, your gold or whatever it might be. And, you know, here's a system of, you know, denominating wealth and protecting wealth. It's digitally based, you know, and that as we talked about 12 words, you know, control your wealth. And so unless they can torture the 12 words out of you, um, you know, they can't, I mean, an individual has as much monetary wealth protection capability as a country with an army, which is really, when you get your head around it, it's kind of like, wow, that's powerful. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. that's, that's a really, really big change in the world. I mean, that did not exist 12 years ago. Yeah. Um, and there's more of us than there is of them. This is this fundamental thing that I think people, right. there's this illusion that the government is this big, huge, powerful thing. But in reality, it's like, there's way more of us than there are of them. They have guns, but like the power, collective power of the population of a country, it's like, you know, I always, I love this meme that I see all the time. It's basically a board hanging over a cliff. There's a government official on the board on the side that's off the cliff and everyone's standing on the other end. And the minute they make a demand where we're all like, screw this, I'm out, we get off, they fall off the cliff because we are the ones that are giving them this power. And we don't, I think we take for granted that we have massive collective power. And now we actually have a way to exercise it with Bitcoin and we can do it peacefully. I think that's my, that's like the holy grail, right? Like, I don't know if there's a creation that could have been made that could be better than Bitcoin for the scenario we're in. It's literally the perfect tool for doing yes. this peacefully and minimizing the amount of, uh, you know, blood and suffering essentially. And it's, it's really freaking cool. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, Hayek said that, you know, that, that we got to just figure out some way to take the power away from them that they didn't understand and there's nothing they can do about it. And, and it's, yeah, it's a thing of beauty. I mean, I, you know, and it's why, you know, Bitcoin price goes up, price goes down, who cares? You know, it's, right. it's you just know where this is going. And, uh, it's never you know, I'm just, basically. I just hope I'm around to see the, you know, something closer to the end point. And I'm pretty <laughs> sure I will be because I, I, you know, this is a fourth turning and they tend to take kind of 20 years, 20, maybe 30 years on the outside. If this one started in 08, you know, that would imply that, you know, we're well into it. And, yeah. um, and it's technology based. So things are faster. Yeah. And so I, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, I, I've often said, you know, the, the elites are badly outnumbered. Now, having said that, let us not forget that they control a lot of stuff. I mean, they control yeah. the narrative, they control the networks, they control, you know, all this stuff. I mean, look at what they've, you know, done recently, you know, in, in scaring the shit out of people with, you know, on a virus. I mean, they, you know, yeah. they, they, they've got, they've got a lot of power and, and they're going to try and use it. Um, but, but if they misuse it, that, you know, every time they misuse it, more and more people wake up to, you know, the, Hey, you know, what the hell? I mean, this is, you know, I thought these guys had our best interests at heart and, it, you know, it's now becoming more clearly obvious that they don't, you know, well, and, so, and there's, their source of power is slowly bleeding, right? Like every, oh, yeah. every person yeah. who buys Bitcoin is a small pinprick in their Holy grail of power. Well, that's and, exactly right. And it's almost like we need Bitcoin to fly under the radar and be fairly subtle for a long period of time because we need it to be extremely robust when this inversion happens. And I think we, we actually need governments to not take it seriously for a long time. And right. We've seen well, that, and right? Unfortunately, they haven't. Um, you know, some have, but um, yeah, but you know, it, it almost really doesn't matter in my view what, you know, what the governments do because it's just, it's inevitable. I mean, it's game theory inevitable. I mean, I, you know. And so I, you know, like I say, I, I laugh as we watch these, you know, incumbent powers struggle with the fact that they're losing and yeah. they are losing. I mean, they really, really are losing. And so, yeah. 
Um, we're you know, playing chess and their their queen and their king are just getting chased now. They're not even yeah, they're, they're not even they don't even have a a dog in the fight anymore. It's really no, just they're, like they're, they're yeah. they they are they are losing and they are in deep trouble. And and the smart ones know that. And yeah. um, you know, I, I, eventually we're going to flip them. I mean, I think that you know the. I think the people in the Pentagon and the people in the in the CIA are probably aware of you know how dangerous the the reserve currency position we put ourselves in is, and I think they're going to at some point, you know, they're going to try and push for for a sounder money standard, and and hopefully it'll be Bitcoin versus gold because I think, you know, too much of the gold is owned by China and India and Russia. Um, Let's talk about yeah. Let's talk about Bitcoin and gold as allies now that you bring it up because I really think you know you've been. Like you said, you've been carrying the water for a long time. This whole community of people who are believers of sound money and believe in gold uh, have been fighting this battle for a long time. Like you're, you're probably getting tired because it's draining to fight a battle and have an inferior weapon. And, you know, this whole yeah. idea that essentially paper gold has um, been the kryptonite to gold, right? They found a way to corrupt yeah. gold and mitigate yes. its impact. And now we have this superior let's call it weapon on this battlefield, which is Bitcoin, which when bit, when that weapon succeeds at making the, the evil powers retreat, gold now has a chance to actually be worth what it's supposed to be worth. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on like, you know, I really am viewing Bitcoin and gold as an ally. And I think we have to recalibrate the conversation from looking at them as like, um, you know, competitors with each other to being like an alliance that is actually more powerful together. Oh, yeah. Look, they, they do compete with one another. I mean, somebody wants to buy sound money, they can buy one or the other. I mean, they, sure. so in that respect, they compete. And I understand this whole thing, there can only be one, but, um, but they're, you know, it's a big world and there's 6 billion people. And, you know, there's something called the Lindy effect, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which is basically says the longer something's been around, the longer it's likely to continue to be around. And we got 5,000 years of gold. We got 12, 12 years of Bitcoin. So yeah. or 13 years of Bitcoin. So, you know, um, gold isn't going away and uh, as a, as a monetary, monetary store of value. And it has been severely depressed. So it's not nearly, everyone says, well, you're going to lose your monetary premium. Well, bullshit. I mean, it costs about a thousand ounce on average to, to mine a, you know, mine an ounce of gold and 1100 probably today. And, you know, it's selling at 1800. So there's a premium there for sure. 700 bucks, you know, jewelry premium, whatever. But if you looked at it and you computed gold's value today, the way you did in 1971, gold should be at $25,000 an ounce right now. Wow. And the reason it's not is the paper gold has suppressed that price, you know, and there were, there's this, that's, that's a multi-hour conversation unto itself, how they did that. I mean, Barsky and Summers and Gibson's paradox and all that stuff, but, but suffice it to say that, um, do you think you know, that can happen with Bitcoin? Do you think paper um, Bitcoin can, can well, it's, be a threat? I, I, it, bottom line, no. I don't think it will happen. I think Bitcoin's moving too fast and breaking too much shit for them to be able to pull it off. But I've talked about this, and I had a thread on this on my Twitter feed a few a week ago or so. There is a paper Bitcoin market. I mean, there are yeah. CME futures, futures right? on Bitcoin, yeah. right? And so, I mean, the beautiful thing about Bitcoin is everything settles back to the chain and you know, it's very hard to borrow Bitcoin and, and or if you do borrow it and it goes up 500%, you're going to get wrecked and all that kind of stuff. Okay, fine. Right. And you can see where all of it is. And so there's a limited supply. And those things all make it advantageous versus gold. Having said that, you know, if there's a paper market, there's a paper market. And so, you know, in, in, the, in the case of gold, we know that there are between 300 and 1,000 claims for every ounce of gold in the world. And that's how they've suppressed it. Yeah, I mean, we've that's seen crazy. the... You know, well, you go look at the you go look at the paper market for gold and compare it to the amount of physical coins and bullion that are being moved around, and it's just the paper market is just enormous. 
So it is the tail wagging the dog in the case of gold. There's a paper market for Bitcoin too, but it's small relative to the total amount. I can't remember the numbers. It's in my thread. It's like 6% of total daily volume. That's, you know, total open interest in the Bitcoin futures right now. So, so it's a long way away from being a similar situation of gold, but the mechanism is there. And if you did see tons and tons of paper Bitcoin being created, if you saw paper Bitcoin growth, that was really large larger yeah. than would maybe be explained by just the average people who are hedging it using that, that futures contract for hedging, one could come to the conclusion that maybe the government's starting to mess with it. Um, and I, you know, is that likely? I don't know. I, I think it's, I think it's, it's not, it's not a zero probability that that would occur. Yeah. I mean, I, the government, you know, I'm, I'm sure, look, the government's not, I mean, it's funny because I, I, I break the government in a bunch of buckets. I mean, so much of the government is just incredibly stupid. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah thinking some, they're geniuses. That's the fundamental yeah, problem. Well, that's the thing. There's some, there's some piece of it that are evil geniuses. Right. Yeah. And, and, yep. and some of them realize what this means and some of them are very concerned about it. And this is a monetary fire alarm. I mean, you know, when Bitcoin went from, you know, 10,000 to 60,000 in the last you know 18 months or whatever, you know, somebody down there sounds weird to say it still sounds weird to say and said, hang on a second. You know, we got a problem here. You know, this is an alternative form of money. This is is something that's not fiat and it's really working. You know, if this continues, you know, Gresham's law kicks in and, you know, we see a rush out of the dollar. So, you know, it it wouldn't, I mean, I I strongly believe that within the government, there are pieces of government that are trying to game theory and figure out how do we deal with this issue? You know, yeah, um, I'd love I'd love to do a little thought experiment, and let's keep this brief because we only got uh, about thirty minutes left. But you know, money is the root cause of the problem today. It's now time to rebuild a world around sound money. And yeah. you know, as a thought experiment, um, let's say you're contacted to attend a summit. You've been selected as one of twenty-one people called to rebuild our financial world, yeah. and each person is invited to spend maybe ten minutes to essentially say. You know, they, they know the current system's broken. How do we unwind this and move forward effectively while sort of minimizing pain and suffering at just a high level? Like what are the big, big Lego blocks that we got to put in place? You have any tool available, all, you know, radical times call for radical creativity. And we've never, you know, this transition shift permits a huge amount of creativity because when you're rebuilding, you don't have to do small permutations of what currently exists. Like what is the best way for us to sort of, and this is a big question, but feel free to take it where you want, but you got 10 minutes. Give us your take on how do we rebuild while minimizing suffering? And what are the main things we got to start sort of start working on um, to do this? Yeah, well, that's a that's a great question. I've thought about it a lot and I'm not smart enough to know the really the definitive answer, but we need to transition towards sound money. OK, that's there's no doubt about that. And we've got we're, we're, we're operating with a flawed model that's based on continual growth and inflation in the existing monetary units. And that's led us to a condition where we've got continually increasing debt and it's gonna to get to the point where it's completely unserviceable and, and it's gonna blow up. And that's, that's my opinion on what's gonna happen that we're gonna have, I mean, a quasi hyperinflation in the existing currency system. Um, but, but in, you know, so, so, to, so what we could theoretically do is preempt that by saying, look, we see where this is going and therefore we're, we're going to do a currency reset and we're going to you know, move to a gold standard or move to a Bitcoin standard, either one, or move to something maybe that's a hybrid of the two or move to sure. an oil-based standard because really all money is just energy. 
I mean, money is just a representation of energy. It's energy yeah. used to create, you know, gold. There's energy used to run Bitcoin. Tokenized and oil. Energy. Oil is the primary form of energy. So um, it's not a bad thing to think of as kind of having it as your base currency. So, you know, we've got to transition to a base currency based on energy. Um, we've got to take the existing debt that we've got and, um, you know, call it, fix it at a certain level and then do what more or less what Roosevelt did, which is do a massive devaluation and a reset so that, you know, let's let's say we were going to create a new dollar and let's say the new dollar were going to be equal to, you know, a third of Bitcoin, a third gold and a third oil, just as an example, whatever the price of those three things together are, take you know, a, a new dollar or a new a new hundred thousand dollars is now X barrels of oil, you know, point something Bitcoin and X ounces of gold. That's the new dollar. I like right? that. Right. Right. And so so and, and all those prices you're anchoring will, it to reality, basically you're anchoring it to three real energy sources. Right. Yeah. And so um, that's that's the new dollar. And uh, and guess what we're going to do? We're going to all the old dollars. You know, you do the math right now. And guess what? We need to reset the debt. So all the old dollars, 10 old dollars is going to equal one new dollar. And so everyone who has dollar denominated debt right now is it's going to be marked down pretty substantially. And um, but, you know, and, and it's going to be pretty painful to transition to this new currency. But once we have the new currency, that's that there's no changing it. It's it's mathematically determined by those set by those prices. And let's and, be clear, there is no no pain path. There is only the minimal, no. the, the path with the least pain is the most uh, attractive right. well, path. There's no, no right. pain. Right. And the people who, so, so if, if you have no assets and you have no liabilities, that's, that's the best no pain path. I mean, if you're, if you're a plumber, you know, you're doing okay. Now you're going to do okay afterwards. Yep. I mean, where, where this is going to impact you is, and if, you know, sadly it's going to impact old people because they can't re rebuild their wealth, you know, and, and young people are going to be least impacted because they've got their whole life in front of them to, to build wealth. Right. Um, and it's going to, you know, the biggest losers are going to be bondholders by far. Okay. People, you know, and, and, and by the way, I mean, I, you know, so I would, so that's the monetary piece of a reset. You know, I would think that that would be a lot better handled, accepted, and um, you know, everyone could swallow it more easily. If in the United States, there were a constitutional convention and there was, there was an, there was a political piece to the reset as well. And, and that political piece had um, term limits um, for all politicians, uh, complete and absolute ban on uh, money and politics and working for uh, companies in industries that you had involved, been involved with or regulated in the past. Eliminate lobbying. Uh, yeah, lobbying, all that gone, um, you know, et cetera. So I, I think you could, you know, you'd have to change a lot of the political structure. So let me just get rid of this. That's okay. You'd have to change a lot of the political structure in order yeah. to... Um, you know, maybe a, a reset on uh, Social Security um, and uh, and Medicare. Um, you know, some some kind of a means testing, which is arguably unfair. But you know, we we've got two hundred trillion dollars in in unfunded liabilities down here in the United States. I mean, it just can't be met, right? Yeah. Um, maybe a cutback in the U.S. military. Um, you know, and all the bases and all the spending. Um, you know, maybe and I think transparency uh, in this thought experiment, the, I think the biggest thing is transparency, right? Like loop every citizen in the United States in on what exactly is being done, who's right. talking, who's suggesting it, why it's being chosen. I think the transparency really rebuilds trust. Um, right. and I also think it's a beautiful opportunity to, to essentially create, like 
sailor.org, they have literally online free education for the world. And I think this whole notion that technology allows us to educate at scale, find the best person on this topic to educate the world, and then enable that through technology. I think this whole idea that there's a huge opportunity to create um, a public curriculum for health. Because if you help people take care of themselves, they actually don't need as much medicine. And And if you help people understand how money works, you enable them to take some responsibility for the, and, and, and understand that like, this is going to suck, but here's why it sucks. Here's the people responsible for why this sucks. We need to move forward. This is why we chose this path and this, and, and here's the rationale. And I think each person will be able to stomach the discomfort a lot more knowing that the path of least pain was chosen. And here are the implications and here's how this whole system works so that you can make sure that every single person prevents this from happening again. And I think that's, I really love what you said about the um, trifecta of anchoring a new dollar being oil, gold, and Bitcoin. Cause I think that really, that's a very powerful model. I think that's actually realistic, right? Like this is, this is not a, um, a fairy tale. This is actually could, could be viable and would actually solve a lot of problems. Uh, yeah. I mean, look, going back to sound money, is, is the base issue, you know, that, that underpins all of what I believe are the world's problems. But, you know, and, and, and I'm obviously I'm, I'm playing God here and saying this is what I would, you know, try and do. Um, you know, unfortunately, I, I don't think the people that are in power, you know, want to go in that direction. I mean, I think they want to maintain their power. And this thing I see with the central bank digital currency is just another step in the wrong direction. You know, they're, yeah. they're, they want to see everything we do. They want to be able to control us. They want to be able to tax us. I mean, and, and to me, you know, frankly, part of what Bitcoin is all about is destroying the large nation state. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, this, the century of recalibrating it, right? Like we're, yeah. it's not going to go away, but it should have way less power than it currently has. I think that's so important. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I think destroying it in the terms that most people see it has now, in, sure. as yep. in now, you know, and, um, Look, I mean, you know, Henry Ford invented the, you know, the assembly line in early 1900s and, you know, economies of scale were a very, very powerful thing. And that was really the story of this century, which is centralized power and more power and more efficiency and so on and so forth. I mean, we really perfected it in World War II or really learned how to kill people fast. And, you know, we killed 50 million people. Right. And and I think I think what's going on is the Internet started it and now Bitcoin starting it at a, at a monetary layer. And what we're in now is the century of decentralization. And, you know, do we really need, do I really need, you know, an F-35 to be able to fly over other countries and bomb them? I mean, I, the answer is, I don't think so. I don't think those people in other countries mean me harm. And I don't think I need that weapon. And so I don't want to pay for that weapon. And so, um, you know, and, and I think as more and more people come to the realization that part of the reason why their lives are as difficult as they are is because they're paying for that weapon, whether they realize it or not. Right. They're going to say, hey, stop building those weapons. Stop doing that shit. You know, I, I just want to I just want to live my life and I just want to have enough food on the table. And the fact that my money is being debased and I'm paying all these taxes so you guys can build those weapons to you know, play God and attack other countries. You know, those countries aren't threats to me. I don't need that shit. Stop it. Yeah. You know, and, and, and so. So to me, you know, the best the best arrow, you know, to, to stop that kind of behavior, because I don't think they're going to, you know, the, the odds of them doing what I propose in terms of a monetary reset, an intelligent monetary reset, I think those odds are extremely low. Um, you know, I, I think I think they're going to run this thing right into the right over the cliff. You know, I mean, if a thousand people listen to this and 20 yeah. percent of them talk like start having conversations like this 
Yeah. Um, that's how this starts, I think, right? It's not, not maybe not this particular conversation, but 100,000 of these conversations make it such that the collective population is more informed and can put more political pressure to say, this is actually a much better option. And, you know, like, I think you have to do these thought experiments because it's the only way that you can really see, okay, here's the best case scenario. We're probably not going to get that, but we definitely don't want this. And so at yeah. least people knowing what the spectrum of possibility is allows them to have more options to choose from and hopefully more things to uh, vote with their dollars with. And, I, you know, well, don't get me wrong. I think it's, I think it's brilliant that you asked the question. I think it's a question everybody should be considering and focused on. It's just, you know, take what I just described and ask yourself, have you heard anything like this in any form of mainstream media? I mean, yeah. the answer is it's, they're not even aware of what the problem is. Do you know what yeah. I mean? I mean, they're, you know, they're thinking the problem is the Kardashians or something. I mean, I, it's, it's just, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, yeah. so distraction so, is the best way to prevent people from really cluing into reality. Right. I mean, yeah. yeah. So, you know, it, it, it's, um, you know, everybody, you know, I, I think there are very few people who are thinking, you know, kind of at a, at a, at a global level, there are very few brave people who are willing to stand up and speak out against, you know, a world that's constructed in a certain way. Um, and that's, that's unfortunate, but, but I think that, you know, there are some of us who will speak that way. And I think that the numbers are growing and that's positive. And I think that, you know, one other thing I guess is positive, positive is that, you know, governments tend to have people who are in governments often tend to be people who are fairly well to do, and they feel like they've got the time and they have the ego to try and make things better for other people or to try to you know, run the system because it's, it's, it, it feeds their ego. And you know, one thing that might happen is when, when Bitcoiners are the richest people in the world, which is something I foresee occurring within this generation, you know, then we're going to have Bitcoiners in government. And I can, you know, I'm pretty certain that a bunch of Bitcoiners in government are going to be a whole lot better than the people we have in government today. Because <laughs> you know? they actually understand how the shit works and they have the exactly. time to really like well, and, run and, through and, models. And, you know, although some of them are just in it because number goes up, you know, a lot of them, you know, Jeff Booth being a perfect example, a lot of them are in it because they really want a better world. I mean, and I know... You know, I'm, I'm in it for both, but, uh, you know, I, I definitely, you know, I feel like this is an incredibly important thing um, and it's going to happen with or without me, but I feel like this is an incredibly important thing to make the world a better place. You know, Bitcoin, I really do. Yeah. And I think the cool thing is that you might get into it initially because the number go, up, number go up, but it essentially opens a bunch of doors for you to actually see the bigger picture. And yes. I think that is the beautiful game theory of Bitcoin, where you can capture people who are greedy and you can slowly bring them into a rabbit hole that allows them to see a whole new view of reality and maybe gain a, a more humanitarian perspective on the importance of Bitcoin, not just well, as a, right. a way to make money, but like the solution to solving the world, because at a fundamental level, sound money is the key to a better, more abundant world. That's, um, that's my belief for sure. Yeah. I mean, the it's, last thing yeah. I want to talk, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. No, you go. I was just, you brought up a, a thing saying like, you know, Bitcoiners are going to be wealthy. Um, and I'm a firm believer in that too, when, you know, on a long enough time horizon, if we just follow the same path, um, and the big money starts to get into Bitcoin eventually, because that's what the game theory points to yeah. those who hold sound money today are going to become incredibly wealthy in the coming decades. And I think, um, what's really important, I think is to almost, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And I think that, you know, I, I saw people who got into Bitcoin initially and made a lot of money and they just wanted to buy Lambos and Rolexes. And now I'm seeing those people transition to say, I actually want to buy land. I want to have a family. I want to, you know, I want to buy firewood. And I'm seeing this transition in values where Bitcoin is slowly eroding their consumerist values and bringing them more towards like true human core values. And I think we need to almost 
like, I would love to hear your words of wisdom on how do we guide this new generation of wealthy people to wield their wealth responsibly, to basically change the tide of going from the wealthy elite who are stealing everything and no one likes to the responsible wealthy who helped us get to a better place and are now wielding their wealth in a productive way. Like what would be almost like a set of guiding principles from your perspective of how can we be better at holding huge amounts of wealth and how can we use it in a way that benefits other people? Like what values do we need to actually be able to do that? Well, I don't know. I mean, it's, I think everybody's values are, you know, determined in their heart and, and by themselves. I mean, I, um, yeah, I mean, I, I know I don't have much interest in Lambos and Rolexes, <laughs> um, but you know, I mean, look, if, if people want to buy it to, cause number goes up, that's fine. I mean, it, it all supports the cause. I mean, the, I, I think that, um, it's as you say, when you get into it, you start to understand it. And you start to see how it can change people's lives uh, and how how it benefits people. It's it's really not just a number goes up game. It's a you know it is a fix the money, fix the world kind of game. And I, I think most of the Bitcoiners I've encountered, they have that kind of almost religious fervor about it because we understand at the first principles level that it's right. And so and we know what's at stake. I think that's a big thing. Yeah, and we and we know what's at stake, and and so, you know, um, I mean, I you know, I think that I mean one thing I think is important for the community in general is you know to try and maintain you know kind of kindness and humility, you know, in in light of our success. I mean, I I cringe a little bit when I see you know the the have fun staying poor crowd. I mean, I, I get it. I mean, I, and I've been told why they say it because the Peter Schiff's of the world are making fun of them and all that stuff. But I just, to me, that's not helpful. And I mean, the other, or the other one, the NGMI, you know, not going to make it. Okay, fine. I mean, I, you know, look, you know, when you're 30 years old and you're fighting a battle and you feel like you're in the foxhole and, you know, so you're going to use all kinds of memes and things to make your point and fight your battle. But I think it's a much more secure and strong statement to try to say, you know, look, this is a, this is something that's going to help you and it's going to help the world. And if you don't understand it, I'm happy to explain it to you at whatever pace you like. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, you don't understand it. You shouldn't, and you shouldn't knock it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, just as I think Bitcoiners shouldn't knock gold because anybody who withdraws their money from the fiat system, I mean, the fiat standard is what's messed up the world. Yeah. And so any, any vote against the fiat standard is a vote in favor of a better world, in my opinion. And you can argue that Bitcoin's better than gold. In some respects, it is. Um, in others, it's not. But, um, you know, so I think that the probably the most important characteristics, if you want to attract people to the asset class, and I've attracted a lot of people. I've converted a lot of gold bugs. I've had a lot of investors and a lot of friends who were incredibly strongly opposed to it that I've managed to orange pill over time. And I've done it not by beating them over the head or by talking about how much it's gone up or by how much money I've made right. with it but by trying to explain it to them and help them understand it and help them just peel away the layers such that they get it. And they realize that, you know what, he's right. This is a, this is a better way of doing things and this will create a better world. And, and so that's, you know, I think that at everybody's core, we're all very much the same. And so, um, you know, we should, we should be trying to go to that higher, you know, appealing to people's higher and nobler instincts you know, yeah. when we, as we talk about it and about where it may go and, and not really just, you know, kind of number goes up. I don't know if it's, I don't know where to find it, but last night I watched a, 
something out recently. It was either a TED talk or whatever by a, a photographer no, named Platon, P-L-A-T-O-N. Okay. And he made a he made a very we should find that and link that to the show notes if we can because it was really outstanding. I mean he he basically talked about how the world is changing and how the world is becoming a better place. And I mean it could have been a talk about Bitcoin, it wasn't. But um, and the notion was that you know really at our core, you know we're all very much the same. You know we're just scared individuals trying to make it through the make it through our lives in an honorable way. And, you know, no matter which side of the aisle we're on or no matter where we are on the spectrum of a lot of different things, we really are very similar at the core. And, and, and so rather than have these divisive things that are out there in the world taking place, you know, I, I think another part of the next, you know, 10, 20, 50, 100 years will be a much greater realization of that on the part of more and more people that, you know, fighting amongst ourselves really isn't a sensible thing to do, yep. you know, that we can have heated debates and then we can take different points of view, but that, you know, this, this partisanship is just not a good thing. You know? Yeah. I think the humility part is huge because I really think that the, you know, the Bitcoiners that I like to be around are, are Bitcoiners that I think have been forged by Bitcoin. Like they've gone through the hero's journey of all the crazy shit of the ups and downs, and they've gained this broader and broader perspective. And I think the reality is it's really easy to just shut yourself off from the world, be super wealthy and not really like, only savor the world instead of uh, helping to save the world. And I think, you know, like save the world is a big sentence, but I think at the end of the day, as people see their wealth grow, as they have more time, humans innately want to be part of something to give value to each other. I think this is this really deeply seated human characteristic that I think will be extracted with Bitcoin. Cause when people don't have the pressure to have to make decisions based on money, because they have sound money and they have, they've reclaimed responsibility for their time. I really think that, you know, a lot of the people that I know that have accumulated a lot of wealth are now basically trying to choose ways that they can give back to the world with their time, with their education. And instead of just like laughing at the person who didn't buy sound money and saying, have fun staying poor, it's like, well, I want to help you see what I saw and get to this point as well. And yeah, I just think that as a community, we got to really almost like each take on a bit of responsibility to be curators of the Bitcoiners culture so that we don't turn into this group of people that people hate because we're all getting quite wealthy. It's a group of people who helped make the world a better place and are using our wealth responsibly. It doesn't mean giving it all away, but it means like trying to do something to contribute positive value to other people. And I think, I think that'll come out. And um, Larry, it's been a treat talking with you. 90 minutes goes by real, real fast. And I want to be respectful of your time. Um, where can people find your, where can people find your work if they want to find more? Like I said, I, I linked Larry's new Orleans speech, um, on the episode notes. I would highly recommend everyone watch it because that was one of the most powerful 20 minutes I've listened to because you cover so much in such a elegant way, but where can people find more if they want to hear more? Um, yeah. So there are two things. I mean, one, I I run a, a precious, I run a sound money fund that invests in stocks in gold and silver stocks and in Bitcoin and Bitcoin, private Bitcoin companies. So, and you can learn about that at my website, which is EMA2, Edward Mark Alpha, the number two.com. Um, minimum's 100,000. So that's my little sales pitch. Um, but more importantly, to follow my, um, to follow my you know, day-to-day <laughs> rants and, and, uh, and input, the best thing to do is get on Twitter and follow me at, at lawrencelepard.com or not.com, just at lawrencelepard on Twitter. I'm, I'm fairly active on there and I, you know, I offer comments and, and so forth. And, uh, you know, it, it's... Um, uh, you know, it's, it, it, Twitter is really, to me, an amazing resource. I mean, I've learned so much from so many people on Twitter. It's amazing to me. It's free. Uh, 
you know, and, and the Bitcoin community on Twitter is extremely helpful, extremely kind and educating. And, and you know, anybody who's a newbie to Bitcoin, uh, Twitter is a great place to start. I, I direct people to go there. So those would be my two, uh, my two pieces of advice. And uh, don't hesitate to DM me or reach out to me. I, you know, I try to make myself available. I mean, I, it's gotten, I've got a lot of followers now, so it's getting a little harder to respond to everything, but I try the best I can. So, yeah, I respect that a huge amount there. Time is like a scarce resource and uh, with bigger following comes bigger pressures on your time. And I very much appreciate you being here today and share, you know, I consider you like one of the elders because I, to me, an elder is someone who's working on the grapevine, knowing they'll never taste the wine or they may not be the ones who drink all the wine. Yeah, that and, is uh, true. I mean, I am 64. I hope I hope we're at full Bitcoin standard by the time I'm gone, but but we may not be. We'll be well on the way. I'm pretty sure yeah. of that. So yeah, I think Bitcoin standard is going to be a continuum. We're already like inching in. I mean, that's essentially what has to happen when things go the wrong wrong way in a real quick way. And I I think we're you know I'm seeing it coming closer and closer to that point. I'm sure you are too. And um, yeah, like I said, thanks for being here today to everyone uh, listening. Likewise, Nick. I really enjoyed it. You're very thoughtful and great stuff. I'm going to be watching your podcast on a go-forward basis. So I really appreciate it. Powerful. Thanks, Larry. To everyone listening, thanks, thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you want to support the project, you can head to bitcoinstoa.com, send some SaaS to the QR code there, or just share this conversation because I think that's the most powerful way uh, to move towards a Bitcoin future. So thanks for being here and ciao for now. <laughs>